Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining me for Stay Free with Russell Brand for a fantastic show. It's going to be beautiful and fascinating because we have a guest who can be described with both of those words. It's Candice Owens. We're also, when we're exclusively on Rumble, going to be discussing the nature of modern censorship with Candice and the obvious need for the protection of free speech and how we bring our personal morality to the complex subject of free speech. In our item, here's the news. No, here's the effing news. We're going to be talking about Bill Gates and lab-grown food. It's not just synthetic meat grown in Petri dishes, a disturbing literal monstrosity, but now lab-grown fruit that, to me, I've seen some of it, it looks like boogers, and also lacquered fruit that are covered in some sort of odd diaphanous web that I find most disturbing. But now I'm excited, and you will be too, if you saw our previous conversation, because I'm going to be talking to a political commentator, host of the Candice podcast, producer and narrator of the new docuseries Convicting a Murderer on the Daily Wire, the very great, always intriguing, limitlessly confrontational Candace Owens. Candace, how lovely to see you again. It's so wonderful to be back. I, I really just was very excited about doing this podcast because I had such a fun time with you because at the time we were on such opposite sides of the totem pole, but you were just so kind, such great energy. And I just said to myself, he's going to drift a little away from being a hammer and sickle communist because he's just too happy. You know, he's, he's too substantially happy. So it's been it's been really great. And also, Russell, you will, I will never forget you. Like you will always be a part of my love story because I met my husband right after I left your podcast that night. So whenever people ask how we met, I'm like, I was three hours late to dinner with my husband because I was doing Russell Brand's podcast. So I'll never forget you. You're my good luck charm. Some great things could happen for me after this. I am glad that I have this apotropaic quality in your life, that I bring you love and good fortune, Candice. There's a word I don't get to say too frequently. And yet I find that we are already at a point of conflict because I noticed that you threaded your first announcement, for that's what it was, with the idea that you I've somehow been seduced into a political and cultural space that you long knew that I would inertly wander <laughs> into. And I tell you now, I always believed in freedom. I've always been anti-establishment. I've always been pro the rights of the individuals and the rights of the community. I've always been opposed to corporate power and to the combination of states and corporations against the people. And I've always believed that when it comes to cultural issues, we must be allowed to form our own opinions and identities. And I don't think I was ever a hammer and sickle communist. Although I do remember some marvellous moments when you were uh, in our studio. It was the other studio then. He goes, and what's going to happen? Is everyone just going to get along? And I remember you sort of skipping around the studio. I thought, how can I continue to argue with this person? She's just too charming. And then you marched right out of there and got yourself married. And we're both now, I think, three kids further down the line. You've got, you've got a new human being entering the world, have you? Yeah, nine more weeks left of this pregnancy. This will be another boy. I have a boy, a girl, and this one will be a boy. So, yeah, everything has just been wonderful. But I, I do consider this my good luck podcast. So I'm, I'm looking for some good fortune after this. And, yeah, I know I'm being a little hyperbolic. You weren't fully hammer and sickle. But I would just definitely say that you've, as we all have, developed over the years. And it was a wonderful interview. And I think one of the things that you definitely have always been open to is conversation, even with people that you disagree with. So um, I've... I totally understand the success and why people are totally obsessed with your podcast now and everything that you're doing because you're just an interesting person to listen to. I love watching Russell Brand clips. Thank you. You're really lovely to say that to me. Now, when what when I talk about sort of 
aspects of socialism is I think it's important to understand that what I'm interested in is compassion and kindness in politics and actually beyond that love and how do we have systems that are able to convey quite basic spiritual principles I would say that are you know common in Christianity and Islam and all great and minor faiths when we look aside when we look beyond the kind of cultural divisions that can easily arise from religion when well, it, what it offers us I think is the opportunity to infuse our systems of government and control with an emotional and spiritual quality. I feel that like, what we're living in now in this sort of semi... It's not right to say nihilistic because there is there is so much charge when it comes to meaning in our political space. But what there is a lack of, I believe, is spirit and kindness. That everywhere we look, there is kind of deception. There is hatred. There is a lack of real vision. And I would say that that's prevalent throughout the mainstream, whether it's on the purported left or right. What kind of advances have you noticed? What kind of changes have you noticed? Where do you where do you look optimistically on the intervening years since our conversation? Where can you say, well, this has improved, this has gotten better? Well, so I think one of our differences, which we had early on, and we I think we still hold this, I actually don't look for compassion and emotion in politics. I think that it actually needs to be extracted from politics. And I think that part of the reason is that we've moved away from logic and reason and objectiveness and more towards emotion and compassion, which is subjective. And that's why it's problematic. Um, and emotion can yield to some really bad things. We've seen this over the years when people are being uh, so invested in their emotions that they're not thinking clearly. And actually the people that tend to seize control when people are emotional is the government. So I am very much like how I feel doesn't actually matter. We have to remain objective about these things. And I was just having a conversation this morning um, with my in-laws about that. They're, they're overseas at the moment and, and talking about about women and women in politics and why I don't know that it necessarily works all the time. And I, I was talking about this. I've been talking about this on my show for, for years. You know, women are, we are naturally more emotional than men. I hate to say, pretend that there are biological differences between men and women, but there are. And that emotion is a wonderful thing when it comes to caretaking and nurturing and raising children. But I think in the political realm, we often have our emotions hijacked. And when they are hijacked, it can it can lead yield great evil. And I think we're in a circumstance where there's a lot of emotion being hijacked and yielding great evil. I you know, agree with you that logic and rationalism are necessary for logistics, operations and organisation. You can't organise a society based on, I feel very jealous or I feel very joyful or I feel very sad. But when creating a vision, there has to be an emotional component. There has to be an acknowledgement that... that Humanity has some value, that, that we are not just material blobs fighting for individual survival and making necessary pacts with one another, whether that's on a global scale or a communal scale or just the interrelationship between two people for our shared and mutual survival. So I don't think that emotion is a basis for government, but it is the place from where we need to derive our vision. So I don't think that it's uh, in any way tr 
ridiculous to suggest that kindness ought to be a part of politics. And also, I would say, because I recognise what you're disputing and contesting there, I think many of the people that purport to be advocating for kindness and compassion and for, for example, rights of previously or currently maligned groups are actually not doing that at all. They're using those ideas to mask the same kind of corporatism, authoritarianism, ability to censor, ability to surveil, ability to shut down that has always characterised authoritarianism, whether it's from the right or the left, or these new emergent terms like centralist and peripheral. Like there's no question that the, the you know, call them a leftist government, if you will, although it doesn't sort of fit with my terminology, the current American administration are an authoritarian administration, that they're about the imposition of power and control, even the way that the war is discussed, the conversation around the pandemic, the sort of the shaming of people that won't sort of align with their perspective on cultural issues. For me, I don't see that as emotion. I see that as manipulation. Right, exactly. So it's the manipulation of emotions. And I think, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I just think that I can arrive at the conclusion of our humanity logically. I don't need emotions to do that. I, I can uh, I logically deduce that we are human beings and that, of course, we shouldn't be doing things. We shouldn't be imparting evil on individuals. I don't, it's not because of an emotional aspect, but I don't think that we should be imparting evil. But yes, you're exactly right. What we're seeing right now is this authoritarian government across the world that are pretending to care about people, compassion, you know, wear a mask, save lives. Well, how could you not want to save lives? If you don't want to wear a mask, then you're a horrible person and you're trying to kill everybody. Um, and that's why I really think it's important to steal yourself uh, against that sort of a manipulation. And, and when you speak about that, though, they kind of frame you as a harsher person, which is something that I've definitely suffered in the media is that <laughs> this hardening of Candace Owens doesn't have a heart. Um, it's not that I don't have a heart. I just also have a brain. Um, and I'm, I'm very fearful of government encroaching into our personal lives. And I had done everything to insulate my family from that. And the best way to do that is to tether people um, to their brains and, you know, not saying more than their hearts, but just to remember that you do have a brain and you should use it. I don't find you to be a hard person. I think that you're actually a good a deal of fun and that you're very bright and sparky and a joy to be around actually but I do think that you are a sort of deliberately iconoclastic I think you are a great provocateur I think you enjoy saying controversial things that's a sort of my assessment of you but I believe that all of those things are possible within joy and good humour and of course within the parameters of accepting that you have had a completely different life to me you're completely entitled to an entirely different political perspective and in any kind of democracy worthy of the name you would accept and embrace those differences now last time we were talking we spoke a lot about populism in the most sort of common and broad terms, Brexit regarded to be a sort of an emergence of a nationalist populism in my country. Trump commonly regarded as a sort of a, 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 an outlier and a new type of populism. But in a sense, these markers don't hold up to scrutiny because across Europe prior to Brexit, there were numerous populist movements in response to the 2008 financial crash. And in your country, sort of protest movements like Occupy, which I grant you was, was sort of a truly global movement as that financial crash was also global. And would you argue now that populism uh, and those populist events, Trump, Brexit, were not anomalies, but in fact the new normal. That what we're witnessing is a kind of an an end of the, or at least a strong appetite for a different type of politics. And just one sort of conversational example, like 
I think that Ron DeSantis, who's been a guest on our show, and I'm sure you've spoken to him and I found him to be a delightful man, I understand is suffering in the polls because he is too much like a regular politician in a media landscape where what people want now are accessible, personable, identifiably anti-establishment figures like Donald Trump. And let's take for the sake of this conversation, the emergent forces of Vivek Ramaswamy, who I know you're very fond of, and uh, RFK, whose populism uh, and popularity, at least, is another marker of change. Yeah, you know, I think for me personally, the reason why I, I said from the very beginning, it didn't matter how much money that Ron DeSantis had, that he his campaign was going to be a flop. And, and that prognostication has proven true. Uh, is be, It's not necessarily because he seems too much like a politician. It's because there's something about him that feels like he kind of checks which way the wind is going and maybe checks with his donors uh, before he says something. And it, it really comes really down to your, your gut instinct about an individual. And I think it matters. I actually think it matters. There's something that feels less trustworthy with him. And that's not to say that you need to be extremely personable and a great speaker. I mean, I actually find RFK interesting because of the work that he's done. And I'm obviously not a Democrat and I wouldn't vote for him. But I think that the work that he has done regarding vaccines and, you know, sort of standing up to the medical establishment his entire life is something that noteworthy. He's done something different. He's done something brave. And to hear him continue to do that is something that makes me want to gravitate towards him. I I don't think any of us would say RFK Jr. is one of the great orators of our time necessarily. Um, And so, yeah, people are responding to looking at an individual. I think they're taking what they're saying and what they're doing and, and wondering if this person will have enough courage because it takes a lot of courage when you get into a position of power to stand up to the authoritarian, you know, whether it's the CDC or any of the other bodies that, that they've created. And I don't I just don't know that I feel that way about Ron DeSantis. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy is doing a lot of different things. I didn't really think anything of him until I had him on my show. And I just had a very good conversation. I felt like, OK, I kind of understand who this person is. He's a true academic. He's extremely ambitious, but it felt more authentic. So, um, yeah, I, I guess you, you could say that that could be something that has to do with the populist movement and people are naturally distrusting. But I, I, I think it's something else. I think it's gut instinct. And I think that people want to measure you against, you know, did you stand up to this? Did you stand up to that? What is your actual record? And Ron Sanders is a great governor. I have nothing bad to say about him. If I was living in Florida, I'd try to vote for him 10 times if I could. But I, I never thought that he was going to be able to have the same success nationally. Well, it wouldn't be possible to vote 10 times because, as you know, there are no problems with voting in Florida or anywhere else. It's one That's vote correct. per living human being as has been well <laughs> established for a long time now. I think it's not just about um, like oratory, but just authenticity more is what people appear to be craving now, Candice, that people are sort of starting to sense that our sanitised, empty, hollow political rhetoric isn't leading anywhere. Another thing, because you sort of, I guess it's fair to say that your position is generally a conservative, um, how do you feel when issues such as free speech and a broad and general anti-war stance appear to now have become conservative issues? There's been this extraordinary flip where the liberal peace nick, cultural revolution, let it all hang out, let's smoke a doobie man party has become the party of have a war, don't question a war, don't talk about potential peaceful or diplomatic solutions. And obviously, when it comes to censorship, 
the you know the liberal democratic left are it appears more sensorial based on the relationships that have been demonstrated between them and uh, the sort of social media sites for example and their use of various deep state agencies to control narratives and in fact <laughs> Excuse me. Just the continuum of censorship across successive administrations, Snowden onwards, you know. Um, so when the values like free speech and, uh, you know, anti-war can become untethered from one side of the political aisle, what does that do to your position? And do you think it's a fair assessment to just acknowledge that these changes have taken place? Yeah, these changes are taking place. What I would say is the right is still very much pro-war as well. I mean, I think we saw this in the Republican debate stage where how many people were saying you had Pence, you had Nikki Haley. And this is why we talk about the military industrial complex, because it encompasses the left and the right. But speaking outside of the political players and just to the individuals. Yeah, I think what's ha happening is I've tried to actually assess it is people that are left leaning have actually always been emotional. Um, and so what's happened, though, is the emotional arguments are now being transpired to make them support things that they've never supported in the past. Right. So it, it still works. You know, if, if you're saying, you know, end the war in Vietnam, you, you know, there's emotions. Let's let's end the war. Hippies. OK, we want this to be over. And now you're saying, well, no, 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 go to war. Because think about the Ukrainian children. Think about, you know, what, how awful Putin is. It's still a hijacking of emotions. But the end result, I think, is actually different. So they haven't necessarily changed. They've perhaps grown more emotional or I would say the media has grown just increasingly so focused on emotions all the time that they're not even thinking. It's just how could you not feel bad for the Ukrainian children? How could you be so awful that you don't want to send billions? Who cares if there's no accounting? It's kind of going into a black hole and we and we're giving less to the people that are in Maui. Uh, you know, it's it's your job to constantly care about something. Here is the current thing that you need to care about. That's really interesting because it makes you wonder if there's <clears throat> any actual principles present at all. Like that if you have a my position on being anti-war is surely at this point in evolution, we must be able to come to peaceful solutions. Surely this is our duty. And I would say that whether it's the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, Vietnam war, Korean war, current war between Russia and Ukraine. And in all of those wars, the death of civilians and children of all uh, creeds and nationalities is appalling. When it comes to the subject of free speech, when it was the right, when it was we were talking in the 1960s or whatever about civil rights movement, pro-women, gay, uh, different uh, ethnic minorities or cultural groups, when it was the them spearheading that, that cultural movement, their free speech was important. And now I think free speech is... I mean, these are well, what the point of principles is, is they transcend a, con a, a, a an immediate agenda, isn't it? It's like the, you don't, your principle doesn't just sort of shift depending on what your objective is. Oh, I don't like war. Oh, actually, I do like war. And, and it seems that what's happened is that war has become packaged in quite unique ways. And, as, and I, I agree with your analysis that it's emotionally packaged. But what... Um, it appears what the, the the genuine power behind it appears to be an ulterior or transcendent power, depending on your perspective. Uh, in specifically, the military-industrial complex are able to make sure that the American project remains a military one for economic rather than ideological reasons. And I reckon, I suppose that that's a rational discourse and a rational analysis. But for me, it comes from an emotional place because I think. It isn't right to kill people and use violence as a way to resolve disputes. So it's a sort of a fusion of both emotion 
and rationale, because if you know, because rationale can lead to genocide, brutality, and so can emotion. So you know, I wonder what you thought about that little moral snake's nest I've flung you away. No, I actually, I totally agree with you. And then this is why I was staunchly against even from the very beginning, day one, it's like we just pull out of Afghanistan. Now you're telling us that we need to all focus on Ukraine and, and the American mindset is is kind of being set to believe that we constantly have to be worrying about everybody else's problems, right? That if you say, okay, we have plenty of problems here on our own, why don't we focus on those, that you're somehow rotten and you're somehow backwards. And again, there's no accounting for it. You think about, you've got IRS agents that can, God forbid you send $200 on PayPal. You know, you can be fined by the IRS. I can log into my bank account and I can see every single charge, but we have no idea where billions of dollars are going into a black hole. And it's very obvious that there are kickbacks in the and this is why the politicians want to keep these wars going. I mean, that to me is just a rational, logical conclusion that most people don't see when the current thing arrives, because there's this full media effort, because part of the military industrial complex is also the media. The media is, is, is reinforcing these ideals, reinforcing these principles that we constantly have to be the moral police in the world. Quite frankly, I'd like to mind our own business. I, I don't know why we insist that the way that we want to live has to be the exact way that every single person in the world wants to live. I, I live in America. I like American values, I like American principles. Um, I don't necessarily think that people in Iran and Iraq have to enjoy the way that I live or the way that I dress or the freedom that I want to express. And so they use this moral policing argument. And you saw this on the debate stage. It's one of the reasons that I would never vote for Nikki Haley, why I, Mike Pence I would not vote for is because they say, no, it is our job. And they use these Cold War arguments. And this is why we must do this. And, uh, you know, Russia could become the Soviet Union again, when in fact, it's us that has military uh, boots all across the world. It's us that's actually uh, encroaching into other people's territory. And people are completely delusional about that fact. And when you say it, you know, you're public enemy number one, but I've been public enemy number one and two and three for a while now. So it's okay. You've been a lot of public enemies. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, one of our glorious 6.5 million Awakening Wonders, tuning in doubtless to see a fiery spat between Candice Owens and Russell Brand. Candice because of her ferocity and libertarianism and me because of uh, my alleged, I think you said, sickle-waving socialist or hippy-dippy, airy-fairy, sparkle-covered, woo-woo, new-age guru claptrap. Well, it hasn't happened yet. But next, we're going to talk about YouTube censorship and how it has pertained to both of us, how both of us have been affected by legacy and mainstream media censorship and attacks. And we'll be talking about that exclusively on the home of free speech, Rumble. Click the link in the description. Join us over there right now to see us talk about that subject. If you're watching us on Rumble, give us a like. The Rumble button, that don't mean nothing no more. Give us a like. Like us like Mama used to make. And uh, we'll talk now. Are we safe? Are we just on Rumble? Can we, Candice? and I speak freely. Candice, so uh, what do you think about the role of uh, YouTube in regulating and censoring content? Do you think they've just become another arm of the mainstream? And also, I would still want to take issue about saying that my children are surprisingly beautiful rather than predictably beautiful on the basis of a beautiful, two beautiful parents. 
<laughs> your children are shockingly beautiful. I know there's no pictures of them in the public sphere, but I did run into you in the UK and at some hotel and they are shockingly beautiful children. Like they're just really stunningly beautiful. You're kind of like, you see them and it just kind of blows you away. And I'm not saying that you're not a shockingly beautiful man, but, but oh. I am saying that any person that saw your children would be like, wow, these kids are positively <laughs> stunning. They should be on, I don't know, the cover of magazines. They're just, they look like glass dolls is the only way that I can describe it to people. I'm like, have you ever seen Russell Brand's children? They're shockingly beautiful. I always say it. I want to be honest with you. I don't want to say it behind your back. I always say your children are shockingly beautiful behind your back. Now on, I'd like you when you're passing on that anecdote to say, have you ever seen Russell Brand's children? As you might <laughs> imagine, based on his physical appearance, they are extremely beautiful children. But then again, why <laughs> wouldn't they be? Just to reiterate my main point, isn't Russell Brand handsome? And then, mm -hmm. you know, carry on with whatever crazy ethno-nationalist <laughs> right-wing rallying cry you are. <laughs> so, wait, what do you think about YouTube uh, censorship then, Candice? I absolutely hate it. Um, I've, I'm on a ban right now. I'm always in trouble with YouTube. And it, what's, what's really surprising in, in your earlier question about whether or not they're pushing mainstream talking points, I think it's much more nefarious than that. Um, it's really scary. Uh, the groups that they allege are protected, at, I think all of my strikes I've ever gotten on YouTube are all pertaining to the topic of pedophilia. And they try to say, well, you can't talk about pedophiles if you know they're gay or if they're trans, even though we're reporting on actual news stories and talking about what's actually happening. And for me, it's not a battle that I'm willing to give up. So I continue to talk about it and I endure these strikes and these periods because I'm a parent now. So this is not, this isn't one category that I'm not going to say, well, just find me on a different platform and we'll talk about it. It is something that needs to be talked about. There's obviously been an explosion of pedophilia light, as I like to call it. What's happening in the school systems in America, I'm not sure if it's as prominent in the UK school systems and you, you can let me know. But this, this this agenda operating under the guise of LGBTQIA, by the way, um, tacking on extra letters. And this is what happens. These social justice movements never end. Right. It's the NAACP. Uh, OK, now you have the same rights as white Americans. Oh, but now we have another battle to endure. It's against the police officers. Uh, glad. All we want is gay marriage. Love is love. The second you get gay marriage, suddenly you're like, well, what about trans bathroom signs? Oh, OK, now we've got the trans bathroom signs. Well, we need to make sure that children are allowed to pick their gender in the classroom. It's never ending. And I don't understand what two gay men wanting to be in a relationship has anything to do with my children being enrolled in a school and needing to learn about, you know, 26,000 genders that don't exist. And as a parent, this is like that. This is my hill to die on. So, you know, the YouTube censorship surrounding that topic makes me very uncomfortable. What do you imagine is the agenda of those you oppose? What do you genuinely think is the reason? Because, you know, I know the kind of stories you cover. I know how it would be reported in some portions of the media. People would say, oh, like misgendering and things like that. And uh, you know me, right? That's not the sort of thing that I would ever do if someone wants me to say something, you know, the same way as I'd call someone mister or doctor or whatever if they ask me to. Someone says, call me, like whatever. I'm like, it's for me just because of that principle of kindness that I've previously mentioned. With, the, with regard to this issue of, are you saying that 
you believe that paedophilia, like I, you know, obviously I think we both agreed that paedophilia is distinct and separate from other forms of, you know, it's like it's, you know, it's a, a, a matter of abuse because it's a matter of consent and children can't offer consent. They're too young. It's just plain and simple abuse. So what is what do you think is culturally happening? Do you think that paedophilia is try- being normalized and to what end? Yeah, it absolutely is being normalized. I mean, they've already come up with another term for it. You're, you're seeing college professors say that it's this push that it should be called minor attracted people, that the word pedophilia is, is not something that should be used. That's scary. You're, you're softening pedophilia. And when you see things of this nature and then you take a look at the, the books and why they're trying to introduce this to kids that are quite literally in kindergarten, first grade. I mean, you're talking about kids that are five, six and seven years old. Why else would you want to talk to them about their private parts and their gender? It doesn't make sense. Teach my children arithmetic, teach them hard academics, you know, and it, it's not about being accepting because you have children. Could you imagine if every single thing that they said you wanted to affirm? I literally yesterday woke up and my son said he wanted to drive the big car. Yeah, it's important to tell my child, no, he can't drive a car. And so by trying to assign to say to kids, you actually are smart enough and you do have the autonomy separate from your parents to make decisions, what are we setting them up for? You know, we're setting up the idea that you can, you're an adult, you're, you're a little adult and don't listen to your parents and your parents are backwards, which of course is the pedophilia thing is just going to be right behind it. And I've got my eyes on that. I really do believe that that's what's happening right now. My children happen to be quite good drivers and I have no problem with them driving either the big or little. They can do what they want in that vehicle. I mean, as you've said, they're so unnaturally and peculiarly peculiarly and inexplicably good looking. (laughs) Just got (laughs) to let them do whatever they want. Um, I was also, uh, what do I want to say there? I what I feel is reasonable when educating. Firstly, I would say this: the uh, parents of children should be in charge of the way that those children are educated, and whether that's traditional or progressive should be a matter for the parent to determine. Again, that's a principle. So the principle isn't, I've got a preference and I'm going to use this argument to leverage my preference. I don't care, not care, but mind how other people raise their children. I wouldn't want other people telling me how to raise my children. So like, you know, and but what I would say possibly, aside from paedophilia, which is sort of, it seems to me pretty plainly wrong, that When it comes to offering different ways that a human being might express themselves or be, isn't the assumption that we live in a culture that doesn't allow room for debate or conversation, or at least hasn't historically, and a lot of assumptions around identity, around gender have been made that sort of began with the, you know, something you touched on earlier, that women ought to be able to work in all roles and have jobs in, you know, whatever sector. And, you know, like, because even when you said a bit earlier, like, you know, women are more emotional, I thought, God, I bet I'm more emotional than you. And like, you know, I'm a man, you're a woman. I bet you're more logical and rational than me. I'm emotional. Like, that's how I run. You know what I mean? And I've so... You know, like, anyway, so I guess, look, a conversation about norms and the various ways that people might express themselves, I think, is healthy. But having said that, I don't think that anyone else should take uh, precedence over the parents when it comes to, you know, imposing ideals or ideas. So, 
Yeah, we need to be a society, of course, when you're governing for the whole, you, you need to be a society that governs based on the rule, not the exception, right? So yes, it, there are exceptions. Are there some men that are more emotional than women? Absolutely. But as a rule, women are more um, <laughs> women are more emotional than men. And we should be able to say that. We should be able to acknowledge that. And that's always been the circumstance. Women are drawn to certain categories uh, that men are not drawn to. The way that men bond is different than the way that women bond. Um, these are, again, rules. Of course, there are exceptions. I'm sure there are some women that are absolutely absolutely crazy about sports and absolutely love sports. But uh, to then say that because we have these exceptions and we're going to now pretend that all of society needs to pretend that everything is anomalous, that's when things get crazy. I mean, you think it's an act of a compassion to if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm this to affirm them or to uh, not to maybe not affirm them, but you're saying out of respect to you know, play pretend in, in, a, in a certain way. And for me, that's offensive to me because what you're saying is I don't mind how you live, but when you tell me that how you live now has to influence how I live and I have to pretend that reality doesn't exist, I find that to be very problematic. It's sort of like, you know, if you meet a, a person who's suffering from, I don't know, bipolarism or suffering from grand delusions and they come to you and, you know, they say something that is so obviously not true. Um, and but then they demand that you say that it is true. You're demanding that I lie. Right. So if you want to go out and, and pretend that you're a woman and in say I'm, you know, I don't know what a Russell name would be, whatever it is, that's absolutely fine. But I'm I don't have to pretend that you're a woman. I get to exist in the realm of reality. And so I find that to be weird when we're encroaching on people that are seeing things straight and as they are and pretending that it's not kind uh, if they don't want to play pretend. I'll play pretend with toddlers. I will, you know, but not with adults. Well, I suppose I see it as that there is an an around language there is an arbitrariness anyway when it comes to some of the terminology that's used that it's a language is convenience for identification and if language has a different meaning to somebody because of the way that they feel and i can make them feel better just by saying that like for me that's easy and not that different from if someone had a some sort of cultural uh, tag that they would like me to apply like senior monsieur or like whatever if someone says like for me that like, identifies you know female or any form of identification it just doesn't trouble me in that way now like i i'm sort of open to your sort of rule the, the the type of analysis you apply to that but i don't know why why it sort of what troubles you because calling me a birthing person, it's, you're, you're basically saying that I have to cease to exist so that men that have mental disorders can exist, right? That's very wrong. It's very wrong to pretend that I'm not different from you. You've been pregnant before, Russell. Do you think calling me a birthing person is you, you've seen your wife be pregnant? You see what women go through. Um, so the idea that I'm going to stop existing so that somebody can feel good in their head, it's just not who I am. I, 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 I think it's very important to acknowledge the actual struggles that real biological women go through in the same way and and the hurdles that they have to go through and to, as we start diminishing language which obviously is what's happening now uh they're starting to say how do you, you know, you're you're a birthing person men can breastfeed no they can't um women breastfeed women go through that it's a it's a very hectic experience and so i very much draw the line at that and i'm very happy to be considered uh not compassionate or not emotional enough and i think that the reason that movement has gotten so far and now you actually have men invading into women's spaces is because it started with one person saying, I'm just going to pretend to make you feel good. Um, you just reality has to remain re reality. And I am very objective when it comes to those things. OK, um, what I feel is like you said uh, earlier about the um, 
you know, that the norm should rule or the majority should rule. And I started to feel that when it, under scrutiny and analysis, there are so many different taxonomies that are not really acknowledged. An obvious emergent one of the sort of subjects around gender identity that we've been discussing. But it appears that there are just so many ways of being American, being a human being. And it appears to me that really what the ulterior force, the burgeoning force beneath this, which is not being addressed, is that there is nothing permanent or necessarily rational or logical about the idea of a nation state, about having communities of 300 million people or 60 million people under one government, that this in itself is an idea, and plainly it's an idea because there is no actual literal thing called France, it's conceptual, it's abstract, Uh, same for any nation or community. And indeed, for hundreds of thousands of years, we evolved in smaller communities. Now, I'm not um, anti-progress or anti-technology or medicine or any of those great advances, but what I've started to suspect is that centralism, centralization, authoritarianism, gargantuanism, whether that's in the corporate world or in the state are ways that you can create elite strata and control huge populations. What I believe in is maximum democracy that would, in my view, immediately diffuse the kind of conversations we're having. Like in sort of if I was living in a community of a hundred or a thousand people and we vote, do you uh, agree that we, if people want to be called a pronoun, uh, we'll do it? And we go, yeah, yeah, cool. And then you're one, people go, no, no, we're not doing it. There you go, democracy and we all accept and marvel and enjoy the many different ways, like you said earlier, that people might, you know, you're happy if you go to Iran or Australia or Finland and find cultural distinctions, which I think is glorious and, in fact, a different kind of diversity. What I believe we're on some level protesting against is the homogenization of everything. And this homogenization is happening for commerce, for commodity, for authoritarianism. It's not benefiting ordinary people. It's advancing elite interests and it's undemocratic and it's destroying the world and people are sort of positioning it in extraordinary ways in order to facilitate it so where do you think that democracy and the simple idea of people being able to run their own lives and run their own communities as distinct from a kind of libertarianism that becomes ultimately you know i don't know sort of financial and and a communal anti-community how do you what do you think about those type of ideas dear candice Yeah, I actually totally agree with you. And that's actually what makes America quite unique is that we have state rights. And so you can kind of choose your tribe. You know, I made I decided to leave Washington, D.C. and leave. uh, I was also living in Philadelphia for a while because I realized that I don't identify with these people. I don't identify with the way that things are run. And I moved south. And you're it's it's a completely it feels like I'm in a completely different country just living here in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. Completely different values. And it's all about finding your tribe. And you are correct that I think that we function better on a community level. And, and and now my life is totally different and it doesn't even reflect what you're seeing on the mainstream media because they have no interest in the way that people are living in the South uh, whatsoever, actually, if we're ever being talked about, it's in a negative way. So um, you're absolutely right. And this is why I think that I spend so much time and conservatives in general spend so much time talking about families, right? Because that's, that's your original tribe. Your original tribe is a, a husband, a wife, the children. You get to assess how you want to live, what you want to allow into your household, who you want to allow into your household. And that is the number one answer that I get to people when they ask me when they're, they're so frantic about the way of the world. And, and I'm talking specifically about Americans because our, our government is run different, obviously, than yours. Uh, you know, what can I do? What can I do? Rather than focus on the big picture, this idea of what the nation and what our responsibility is as a nation, what can you actually do in your own house? When COVID happened for me, 
I never worried a single day. My children were never going to be masked. I was never going to mask. Uh, when we uh, had a baby nurse come one night and she was wearing a mask, I said, you don't have to wear that. She said, I want to. And I said, actually, we don't allow that in this house. And we, you know, showed her right out uh, because this is our house. We get to, we get to, assign, we're actually the bosses. I, I'm the dictator. Me and my husband are the dictators. We're the evil rulers uh, of this house. So, and, and that so returns power back to the individual. I like, Which is I wonderful. Got, uh, your style, man, you're hilarious. Because like me, like I'm like, listen, I don't really see that these mask things are working. But I guess uh, maybe I'm just uh, not strong enough. But if someone like in my house was wearing a mask, <laughs> oh man, like I feel embarrassed asking people to take their shoes off. Like, you know, like, but you'd be like, get that mask off. You, yep. And what, what That's did what they I did say? did the entire time. I, she left. It was, you know, it, is, it was no hard feelings. I just said, we actually don't allow that in our home. And I think she was quite surprised by that. And But the, the concept of my child waking up in the middle of the night, baby, and you've got a person that looks like Bane from Batman looking over the crib, it's just not allowed in my house. You know what I mean? So this, this is a baby. If you're afraid of a baby, I don't need you here, right? So if, <laughs> if a baby terrifies you, you Hello, are obviously let me not a good check baby. This baby is doing well. <laughs> what a delightful child. That's my Bane impression. I hope you're Please, <laughs> very good. Done that. But that's what it would look like. I was like, he's gonna wake up, and my poor little baby's gonna see like a, this. That's very scary. And so we just didn't allow it in our households at all. Didn't require any of our employees to wear it. We didn't stop anything. We didn't care about. Don't see your family for Thanksgiving. I hosted a huge Thanksgiving. You know, that's the beauty of small communities. That's the beauty of family. You get to establish your own rules. You don't have to pay attention to the nonsense of the mainstream media. So you're absolutely correct. In a way, it starts to expose. I think a conversation like this one that. There is no need for ongoing cultural conflict. There is simply a need for mutual acceptance and respect, whether it's a subject like masking, where it appears we agree, except I'm too scared to impose my own beliefs in the same way that you are, or subjects like uh, gender identity, where we disagree, but it's sort of like, yeah, let's be who we are, man. <laughs> like, what's the issue? Now, I want to talk to you a moment, Candice, that because you are such a troublemaker, because you can't even accept that Netflix have made a successful documentary about causing some bloody problem about it, making a murderer, which we all liked. We all had a lot of fun. We all sat around thinking, oh, the police are corrupt, aren't they? The way they've jailed this poor fella. It was a, a lot of joy. Now, you've made a new docu-series trying to ruin that for everyone else, haven't you? <laughs> trying to even un I have. Un unmask that, like that was a problem. Tell us about your new docu-series, Convicting a Murderer, and why you've done this and why you're such a troublemaker. <laughs> I have to say, I, one of the things that I'm fascinated about is the just the psychology of propaganda. And we've all fell victim to it at one point in our lives. I mean, there are so many things that I believed when I was in high school. And now I know that those things simply aren't true, but I, I adamantly believed them in my soul. And so in, in my political career or in my cultural career, however you want to spin that, um, I like I like the idea of a mass brainwashing that takes place because the media was able to present a piece. And so I obviously did the Black Lives Matter doc last year, and now Black Lives Matter has filed for Chapter 11, and people are starting to realize, yeah, I got really emotional and fired up about that. But, you know, before uh, BLM and George Floyd, there was this Making a Murderer series. And for whatever reason, we trust documentaries more. Like, we just set our preset to like, okay, the media might be lying, the news might be lying to me, but the documentary, I'm, they're documenting this, so this absolutely must be the truth. And the Stephen Avery case was absolutely fascinating. You know, it was it was a global sensation. It put Netflix on the map. 
And you see this same dynamic that keeps playing out over and over again, where we are now interested in turning villains into heroes. And you see this on a fantastical stage, like, you know, the movie Maleficent, like they're, they're oh, actually, here's the real story, uh, Wicked, Broadway play. Oh, actually, I know she was the bad guy, but let me tell you why she has a soul. Joker, you know, actually, let's really tell the story of the villain, feel bad for the villain. But then when that happens in real life, like with the Stephen Avery case and making a murderer, when you are taking someone who, uh, you know, threw a cat into the fire, abused animals, abused dogs, abused cats, uh, abused women throughout his lifetime, and then kills a woman. And you say, as a documentary maker, how can we turn him and into a sympathetic character? We're talking about someone that has that's something that has very serious implications. We're talking about a family that had to not just bury their daughter, Teresa Hallback, who was 22 years old and had her entire life ahead of her and was fearful of this man, Stephen Avery, and who expressed her fear regarding this man, Stephen Avery. She was brutally raped twice. She was shot. She was stabbed. She was burned. She was uh, chopped into a million pieces. And then she was killed in the afterlife because two lesbian docu documentary makers from New York was like, this could be an interesting person to turn into a hero. And what happened was the celebrities seized this, all the usual characters. Alec Baldwin said, you know, the brother wasn't crying enough at the funeral and created this monstrosity of this family getting harassed with conspiracy theories, some that the daughter wasn't even dead, that she was gone with the cows and in Mexico. It created a cult, you know, a, a, a fan base and people sending letters to Stephen Avery wanting to marry him in prison. It's very dangerous. This aspect of the media being able to turn villains into heroes when it comes to real life is very, very dangerous. And I'm very interested and I always want to expose it because the only way we conquer it is if we all realize that we're we're getting duped, you know, that, that we're playing a part in all of this. That's a fascinating perspective and take. What do you think it is? What do you like? Because I've always thought that in a sense, uh, like a story that tells the, the Joker from a sort of semi-naturalistic and anti-hero perspective is an interesting artifact, an interesting take. And those, you know, and also, by the way, a kind of a we cultural weariness and a running out of IP, frankly, and running out of ways to keep franchises alive. Um, but do you think that there's something sort of more nefarious at play? Yeah, well, I think that first and foremost, you're right. It, it's interesting. You're like, oh, yeah, this could be another take. This could be interesting. We're going to explore this. But I think in terms of the media, there's always been something more nefarious at play. I don't think it's a coincidence that all the late night talk hosts made these documentary makers stars, gave them Emmys, um, you know, and told them, uh, yeah, absolutely. This could potentially be true and decided not to look over the facts. There was one UK host, actually, who from the very beginning called those women out and said, you're not telling everything about the case. But his, his name I can't think of right now. But I think for them, there was always an agenda because in 2015, when this docu docuseries premiered, Making a Murderer, uh, there was this sort of anti-police sentiment that was brewing. And they wanted to believe that the police, who are generally the good guys, were the bad guys. And we've seen how that's played up and how that's scaled over the years. And you see that when they were sitting down with Trevor Noah and these hosts on late night talks, you know, Trevor did his thing and he's sort of said, oh, well, this is the one case where now white people can see how we've been, you know, how, how maybe potentially the criminal system is wrong and rotten and locking them up because of Stephen Avery and did his whole bit. And so it was also a way to 
racialize everything, which is bizarre because Stephen Avery was a white guy, but to kind of drum up this narrative. So I think that there is always a nefarious political agenda and they seized upon this series to further divide people. And yeah, we're kind of seeing the consequences of that. But this is something that I'm just fascinated by. I just I love to examine people's psychology and how easily we are routinely duped by the power of the mainstream media. What do you think? Yeah, God, testify. What do you think is uh, the significance of uh, the success of a film like Sound of Freedom or the emergence of our man, Oliver Anthony, like the sort of, I won't use the phrase anti-hero after what we've just been discussing, but like new cultural voices that are not coming through the typical machinery, the media machinery, which of course have incumbent economic models and certainly you strongly believe a set of ideals that they are conveying through their cultural products. What do you think about the sound of freedom phenomena? Let's start there. It's amazing. It's amazing to see something that is truly anti-establishment uh, have so much success. And I think we're seeing this, like you, like you said, with uh, um, with rich men north of Richmond, that people you, we're understanding how people are feeling. And I think that there is a moment, there is a shift that is happening culturally. I think people are no longer believing their, uh, their, what they're reading and what they're seeing in the mainstream media. And that's in large part, not just because of people like them, but people like you, podcast hosts that are getting millions and millions of views and subscribers stepping outside of the traditional model. And I think that infuriates the establishment. Um, and it's why they've grown angrier and why they are encroaching even more on censorship and things of those nature, because they think if we can just stop these people from speaking, then we'll be able to regain control. But they're wrong. The train has already left the station. Oh, please, God, please, God. Hey, um, I've got a few questions from like people. Thomas Beard, I was just like watching these guys in the locals chat. Some of them, they're such conspiracy theorists. They think that this ain't even live. It's live. Thomas Beard goes, do you think that the Will Smith Chris Rock slap was staged? I don't. No, I think I think Will Smith is a is a broken man, and I I think it, when I watched his wife put, put put him on red table talk and talk about how he cheat, she cheated on him with her son's friend, and he sat there like a puppy. I I was watching a man. It was like it was very sad, like a tail between my legs, something that you should never see happen for a man. And I think he was broken. He had a moment. He wanted to show Jada that he was the strong masculine man that she's looking for, and he did something stupid. Yeah, that's good analysis. Fair enough. Thanks. Uh, Michael L. Ross goes, do you ever plan to run for president because uh, him and his family want you to? That's very sweet. Thank you so much. You know, at the moment, I'm running behind toddlers. Uh, the family stuff is way more important to me. Um, and I actually think that I have more influence outside of politics. I think the realm of culture is way more influential. And I'm, I'm just happy with where I am right now. You won't do it. Um... Oh, wow. Uh, gosh. Okay. Ah, Rich2054, what is your personal view of the Lahaina fires, the local federal government response, and uh, your what's your perspective on uh, big stars doing uh, like uh, campaigns to raise money for that? Uh, obviously, the federal response has been abysmal. And when you weigh it against our response to Ukraine and the united effort to make us send money overseas, it should really shine a light on uh, how corrupt the United States has become. I, I don't have any conspiracy theories to offer. None of it makes any sense. It's it's very worrisome and it's kind of hard to sift through it all at the moment. But yeah, absolutely a corrupt response is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird one that I tell you, it's interesting talking to you. Maybe I have changed. Maybe I have. 
you know, I still disagree with you with loads of things, but I, I agree with the, I agree with the concept of you. I agree with the essence of you. Yes. I agree yes. with, with the right for you to be you. And if you came <laughs> on here one day and said that you wanted a different pronoun, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even remark on it. I just go, yeah, all right. I don't care. I'm like, I'm happy. Love is love. Love is love. So, um, hey, listen, uh, Candice, thank you very much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Now, get out there in that world and have some fantastic luck. Last time you left the conversation with me, you went out and got a husband. Why not leap straight into polygamy? Go out there, get another one. <laughs> or a wife. Why not that? You, you've heard it here first. I'm off to get me another husband because that's just my luck after I do the Russell Brand show. So... <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's always been so fun. Let's not make it too long next time. And I'm always in the UK, by the way. We could do this in person. I am a married Englishman, uh, you know. I know. I know you did. Yeah. Don't think I don't think about that. Come and come and uh, sit here. Come and be on the show. I'd love that. I, I'd love yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Candice. Stop saying that my children are like I like beautiful, but not unnaturally beautiful. Not not like no, they are. They're just cre they're like beautiful creatures. Like they're like perfect specimens. It's, because they it's, would, guys. I'm telling you, it's bizarre. Obviously, because they would be. Uh, Candice's <laughs> new docu series, "Convicting a Murderer," which is seemingly made just to annoy people, is available on the Daily Wire, of course, and you can watch uh, episode one on YouTube. Her podcast, Candice, is available now. Switch it. Switch on, switch off, many switching, switch on, switch off, switch on, many switching, switch on, switch off, many switching, switch on, switch off.